Here on Gadget Lab, we dive deep into the tech universe, tackling questions like, is giving companies access to your genetic material a good idea? And are the latest phone releases really that different than the last ones? We want to help you make informed decisions about what is worth your attention. And here's something that is undeniably worth your time, a digital subscription to Wired. Lucky for you, we are giving Gadget Lab listeners an exclusive discount, 20% off an annual subscription to Wired. Just visit Wired.com and use the promo code GL20 to get 20% off a digital subscription. Use GL20 to get exclusive access to stories on the latest innovations like AI, deepfakes, and VR, as well as today's most talked about people in technology. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Lauren. Mike. Lauren, have you ever used AI to compose a text message? I think all of us have. Or a lot of us have. How so? Well, you know, when you're typing a text and those prompt words appear below because your phone is guessing that you mean to type the word chameleon or something, that is, you know, it's, it's AI. Sure. Yeah. I, I like the, the hack where you can sweep across your space bar on the virtual keyboard and it completes the sentence for you on the, on the Pixel phone. It's pretty amazing. I don't think I knew that. <laughs> well, what about generative AI? Have you ever used that to like compose an email or a cover letter or just to... Send a message to somebody because you don't want to be bothered to actually like type it out yourself. I haven't done that yet, but I bet I'm going to get there. Me too. Yeah. Um, I can't figure out whether I should be excited about this or concerned. I think that's what we should talk about. Let's do it. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Gadget Lab. I am Michael Calori. I'm a senior editor at Wired. And I'm Lauren Good. I'm a senior writer at Wired, soon to be replaced by generative AI. <laughs> We're also joined by Wired senior reviews editor Julian Chokatu in the flesh. Yay. Hello there. Julian's here. Also, he's really tall. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, I am. So is the AI simulacrum. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, in case you haven't guessed yet, today we're going to be talking about Google I.O., the big developer event that the company holds every year down in its hometown of Mountain View, California. Google used the first day of the conference, which was yesterday, to announce a whole bunch of new products, including a folding Pixel phone, a non-folding Pixel phone, a tablet. But it wasn't just about hardware because I.O. is traditionally all about software. And this year's keynote was filled with demos of new software powered by machine intelligence. Google showed off a new chat style interface for search, some AI powered Android features, and a little bot that helps you write emails and spreadsheets. Pressure has been building for Google to catch up to all the other companies like Microsoft and OpenAI that have been enjoying all the hype around generative AI. So Google's response this week was to just put AI into everything. <laughs> We're going to save the hardware news from I.O. for the second half of the show and spend the first half talking about these new machine intelligent tools. Before we get too deep into it, let's set the scene a bit. Now, Lauren and Julian, both of you saw the I.O. keynote in person. What was the vibe like? I defer to our guest. 
It was colder than I expected, which was, you know, not just wasn't expecting that really. So Welcome um, to I Northern remember, California. Right. I mean, they put um, <laughs> like, you know, a sunscreen and all that kind of stuff in the little bag that they gave us. And I was like, I don't need this. This is, uh, it's not, it's not hot at all. But uh, no, like the vibe for the actual keynote was pretty normal. It felt like previous IOs in a lot of ways. You can feel the fewer number of developers that were there, um, but overall, like the keynote felt like it was years past pre-pandemic, um, the speakers, all of that such. Um, the vibe of like what the show was was just very weird because, you know, the traditional things you hear Google talk about a lot at these things like Android or, you know, Wear OS or tablets or all these other things. Just kind of wasn't there. Um, Google Assistant is another good one. Like, I don't think they ever said the word Google Assistant together. <laughs> so that was really weird because it feels like this thing they've been hyping up for so many years. And now it was all completely different stuff. So that that was just kind of the most weird part of the show. Yeah. What Julian said, that all makes sense. It, I mean, it was great to be in person again. This was the first in-person I.O. since 2019, since before mm. the pandemic. So there was a bit of excitement in the air, people seeing each other again for the first time in, in years. But there were fewer developers there. And so it was a little bit more subdued. There also was, little side note, a plane flying overhead during the keynote, we were all sitting in the uh, the amphitheater, which is outdoors. It's kind of this bowl. And we could hear, you know, as Sundar Pichai is talking about the advancements in AI that Google has pioneered, there's a plane flying overhead with a banner that is basically calling out Google for not keeping people's locations private, specific to um, when they're searching for abortions. Oh, I see. Spe specific for... Specific to when they're, they're going to abortion clinics. Right. And um, I'm pretty sure that was a reaction to a Washington Post story that ran earlier this week where the Post ran an investigation and, and realized that even when they thought their, their information was private, um, it's not. So, um, like, just, you know, zooming out a little bit here, like, Google is an advertising company. It's a data collection company. And so there was this juxtaposition of look at all of these incredible whiz-bang AI tools that are going to make your searches faster, your email writing more efficient. It's, you know, you're going to be able to generate entirely new content um, from just like entering a few prompts. And like, this is how it's going to make your life better. But Google is still, at the end of the day, a search, any search advertising company that is concerned about its bottom line. So that's like, that's setting the scene. And I wonder, too, if it's worth maybe quickly talking about the differences between the AI that we've seen in Google in years past versus the generative AI that we're talking about today. Yeah. What's the difference between like Google Assistant and the predictive text stuff that, that we were just talking about and something like the chatbot that appears in search now or the bots that are going to help us write emails in Gmail. Right. So I mentioned earlier that like as we've been texting for years now, there's this predictive text that pops up. And that is just one of many examples of AI that has already existed in our apps and phones. The category of AI that people are all talking about right now is generative AI. And the main difference is the size of the training sets, the data training sets that inform what's known as these machine, you know, People call them models. They're machine learning models. The data sets are massive. And then the technology itself is using these very specific frameworks. Like one is called generative pre-trained transformers, which translates to GPT, mm -hmm. which may sound familiar to people. And it's the idea is that it's not just AI that's enhancing your computing experience. It's actually creating totally new content. It's, it's like 
it's able to compose an entire email for you, not just slightly change the tone of it or suggest a word. Um, and so that's boiling it down to um, its most simple terms. But yeah, I think that's the category of AI that Google was talking about most yesterday. So these tools are going to start showing up in places that you and I hang out in all the time, right? Like spreadsheets, docs, Gmail. We're going to start seeing what show up in these tools. So the coolest thing that I saw that Google uh, announcing was this thing called Duet AI in Workspace. And that is basically adding these AI features into apps like Google Docs, Google Sheets, and Google Slides. And what is really interesting is these are it's almost like an evolution of those tools like historically we just use those tools we type in google docs we make slides powerpoints all that kind of stuff but here you can for example in google docs just enter a prompt of will help me write a job description. That was the example they sort of gave. And of course, you're going to input some key details like uh, uh, for a marketing position. I don't know. Uh, and then it actually spits out, you know, what looks like a pretty good job description. And then you can then go in and tinker it to, you know, tailor it more to your position. Uh, and so, you know, this, there's a lot of questions about the the what you're doing in that scenario because you're completely asking this AI to write something and then is it really your own work is it uh, there's just a lot of questions like that but I can see it uh, being super helpful for a lot of these mundane tasks that we all have to do that really you know at this point in time we should be using services like AI to get help with things like that one thing that I was thinking of was, you know, when I was younger making uh, Google Slides, for example, like, or, you know, using PowerPoint, we would use the clip art function to hunt through all these images to just add some silly photos or whatever into our PowerPoint presentations and, uh, or, or, you know, word art, things like that. Uh, and now the fact that you can just use generative AI to just say, I need a picture of a pizza or something like that, you know, and not have to worry about sourcing necessarily. But again, that is also, <laughs> uh, you know, that's also uh, this thing is getting those images by sourcing all of the Internet and potentially using um, people's artworks. And so there's. So many weird questions that follow along with what Gen AI is able to do in these services that everyone uses, but it does feel like the natural step evolution of these everyday tools. Yeah. Yeah. Like traditionally, whenever the tech industry is caught in one of these hype cycles, they don't like pause and wait to answer those big questions. They just steamroller straight through and just keep pushing these tools out. There are people who are calling for the tech industry to pause all of these tools and answer these big questions about things like, uh, you know, derivative work and copyright and the ethical considerations and the safety considerations of them. But and the misinformation and the, the hallucinations, as it's called. Yeah. The ability or the tendency for these generative AI models to spit out completely inaccurate information. Yeah. Yeah. Make up bullshit, as they say. <laughs> Is that the technical term for it? That's the technical term is bullshit. Um, speaking of, I mean, Lauren, what did you think of the search stuff? Like you've spent a lot of time playing around with Bing Chat, which was the big one that came out earlier this year from Microsoft, and a little bit of time also playing with Bard, the chat bot that Google has made for its search tool. But there was, there was even more shown off at, at I.O., right? Right. So when Google released Bard a couple of months ago, uh, there were at least two things to note about it. One is that it was seen very much as like a 
response to OpenAI's ChatGPT and Microsoft's Bing Chat. Um, of course, Google had been working on BARD for a long time. It wasn't like it just you know, came up with it in a few weeks, but it was as though Google was a little bit reactionary. The second thing is that BARD was its own you know, URL, its own interface. It wasn't a part of Google search. You would go to BARD and you would type in a prompt or a query and it would spit out a response in very conversational language. And um, you, Google was positioning this as like a creative companion. It's not the thing that's going to replace search, but it's something that's going to enhance the stuff you're trying to make or generate on the internet. Mm. And then there was like a Google it button within there where if Bard's answer wasn't sufficient for you, you could Google it. Now, what we've seen is a, an experimental version of Google search as we've known it for a very long time with a generative AI option at the top. And that option won't appear for every search. For example, if you search for something political, like I searched for what are the abortion laws in Florida, the generative AI actually like wouldn't answer. It wouldn't participate in that conversation. Google says similarly that's going to happen uh, for searches around like health or finances. Like it's not going to advise you to trade certain stocks. But if you're shopping for a Bluetooth speaker, in this experimental new version of search, there's a Gen AI op option at the top, and it basically generates like a bullet pointed list of things that you should be considering. Uh, it generates like little summaries for different Bluetooth speakers. Then like kind of off to the side, there might be some like chips or things you can click on that show reviews. Then below that, you eventually get to like, you know, web results. Um, it's it, like Google is trying to summarize or expedite in some ways the search process using generative AI at the top. And this is still experimental. They made that very clear. Um, you know, my reaction to it was I was not totally convinced that that was going to make the current problems we may or may not have with search any better. We also haven't seen yet what advertising is going to look like. Yeah. But this is, it's like kind of wild to think that this is the founding product of Google as a company, as an entity. And this is like, this is a whole new world we're entering. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that whole demo <laughs> was fun to watch. Uh, <laughs> considering my job is, you know, you know, all of our jobs are testing products and recommending um, gadgets. You know, the example they had was e-bikes, and um, you know, we were talking in the live blog and and, and in our Slack channels. And uh, Adrian, our coworker, she was saying that the the top recommendation that came up when uh, they had the query in there for a specific type of e-bike was um, one that she didn't like, and so. There was just all these questions of like, where is this data really coming from? Because it wasn't really clear. It wasn't citing like review sites or anything specific. It was just kind of like, here's five top e-bikes based on what you're searching for. And so there are people out there doing the real work of like testing these things. And then it's kind of like Google just takes all of that information doesn't really source or credit and then puts that up there. And then, you know, we also, you know, make revenue from affiliate links and clicking uh, people purchasing items by clicking our links. Right. You take a small Disclosure. portion of that. <laughs> yes. Um, and that is going to affect, you know, all these websites and publishers that review products and recommend such. And um, now instead of clicking through their links, you're clicking through Google's links. And so that's sort of just gone. And it kind of reminds me of when, you know, publishers were first, you know, having this battle between Facebook and Google where, you know, everyone would be going th to click through those sites and no one was really clicking into a publisher's website. So there was a huge traffic dip and, you know, that affected everything. Yeah. And that ended up with a lot of lawsuits 
lawsuits and settlements and, you know, Google and Facebook investing in these journalism programs. And so it feels like we're coming into a 2.0 situation of something like that where maybe that's what's going to happen. I don't know. But it is a little freaky knowing that, like, the thing that I do right now might completely change within two or three years. <laughs> Yes, this is what it's like to cover the tech industry and yeah. the pivot to chatbot era. Right. <laughs> well, might I suggest it's better than the pivot to video? Yes, most likely. <laughs> All right, well, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk about the folding phone. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Each episode features insight you won't find anywhere else from the center of the conversation surrounding emerging technologies like AI. Right now on the podcast, you can hear a special episode where Brad Smith lays out Microsoft's vision for a vibrant marketplace driving the new AI economy. To hear more, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Reid Hoffman. And I'm Aria Finger. If you're interested and learning about how technology and humanity can come together to make a better future, then Possible is for you. We invite ambitious builders and deep thinkers like Trevor Noah, Kara Swisher, Sam Altman, and so many more. Help us sketch out the brightest version of the future and what it will take to get there. If you want to be part of the future today, then subscribe to Possible wherever you listen to podcasts. We were all expecting a big hardware announcement at I.O., and we got one. The Pixel Fold was announced at the show. Well, actually, it was teased a few days before the show and then officially unveiled on stage. It's shiny and it's pretty. It has two screens and five cameras. It costs $1,800. Julian, you got a chance to play around with this bendy Pixel. Tell us all about it. It is fun to use and fun to, you know, I, I don't know. I like, I feel like the instant um, dismissal of uh, these types of devices, which has kind of been happening over the couple, past couple of years, um, you know, I think there's arguments for it and against it. Number one being that this thing is, you know, $17.99 and it mm -hmm. is an insane amount of money to spend on a phone, which you can, again, Google shows that the Pixel 7a is $4.99 and that's perfectly fine and more than enough. But this is a phone with two screens and the idea is that we are, you know, smartphone sales might be down, but we are all spending more time than ever on our phones. So if you're telling me that if I'm lying in bed um, reading something on my normal sized phone screen, but I can now open it up to have more of like a newspapery or book-like feel, I'm okay with that. I think that's a great idea. And I think there's lots of uses where, you know, um, you know, people make fun of me because I'm that guy that brings like a portable monitor everywhere I go. Uh, I, I was using one at IO and I was using <laughs> one um, at the coffee shop earlier. And so uh, I have like a second screen almost all the time because I just feel like I need multiple things to reference. And this is kind of that, like the fixed pixel fold has like a 7.6 inch screen when you open it up. So you can do um, multiple uh, apps, split screen, and you get the full, sort of a full screen experience because you get basically two apps side by side. And it's great for, you know, referencing one thing on one and doing something else on the other. You know, most of the time I'm doing something like email and calendar or Slack and, you know, something. It just, it's just, it just makes sense to me. Like, I like it. Um, now, you know, it's not going to be for everyone because it is still a very 
chunky device. You know, Google was sort of saying, oh, it's the thinnest folding phone. Yeah, but there's like one other <laughs> folding phone that people are really buying. So it is a little thinner than that, but it's slightly heavier. It's still like a wide phone. Uh, I think Samsung's is a lot more tall and narrow. Samsung's is chunkier though. So, you know, it'll fit in your pocket a little better, but it's still a folding phone. You know, right. it's going to be very weird when you're stuffing it in your pocket. Maybe your jacket um, pocket instead of your jeans pocket. Right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, I'm wearing this jacket and it has very large pockets. So it'll be fine for me, but not for a lot of other people who have tiny or no pockets most of the time. Right. Um, one of the cool things about the Pixel Fold is being able to use it in different ways that you can't use a traditional phone. So one example was they showed this thing called interpreter mode uh, in Google Translate. And essentially the idea is that you can be talking to your phone screen uh, with Google Translate open and saying something and the person on the opposite end of you will look at the front screen and they'll be able to see the translation in real time and so you're kind of and then they can just tap the little button and they can say something to your phone screen and then you'll see that response on the inner screen so it's kind of this smart intuitive way of like having a conversation without having to like show them your screen and bring it back to you, um, which I think is a really cool way of, of utilizing that front screen. Uh, and the other one was using the primary camera on the rear of the phone to take a selfie by using the front screen as a viewfinder um, because you can place the Pixel Fold uh, on a table and it kind of stands up by itself so you don't need a tripod and you can get the benefit of that much higher resolution image. So, uh, and frame yourself perfectly without having to, you know, have your hand in the shot or something like that. So, it's very cool. two cool ways. Um, my only issue is that if this is like you're a software company and this is like your big new crazy product. Those two seem like kind of like, that's it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, can you come up with a couple more? Like, you know, when I was uh, talking to them in the briefing, I was like, well, how about like a teleprompter mode? And they were like, that's a great idea. And I'm like, <laughs> come on, guys. Oh, be like, careful, Julian. They're going to try to hire you. <laughs> okay, yeah. But I mean, like, that's what I'm saying. Like, third-party developers are going to come up with really cool uh, features like that. Right. But they're going to have to convince them because people are going to have to first buy this phone. Um, and I feel like if they had more features like that out the gate that they came up with instead of sort of leaving it to what people, other people will figure out, I think that would introduce the idea of buying a folding phone and make it a little more appealing to other people. So right. if they just came up with a couple more things, I think that would, you know, boost the interest in this thing because again, it is $17.99. So yeah. really expensive. Mm. And Samsung is going to keep making these things. Yeah. And, you know, Google was also saying like folding phones in general. And if you look at the data, like they are still growing. So people are buying them. I don't know if people are buying them because they're just kind of bored with phones and they're like, oh, sure, I'll buy that thing. But um, it's also just kind of like a wild, wild west of like what form and design works now and what doesn't and experimenting, you know, flip phones are still, well, the folding flip phones are uh, getting more popular because they're really compact and people like those too. So uh, it'll kind of be interesting to see where other folding devices will go. Um, and it's just kind of, uh, you know, I like when people try new things with the same kind of thing that we've all been using for a long time. Mm -hmm. Lauren, what did you think of it? I love the fold. Do you? Yeah, I do. I love the idea of the fold. Uh, so far, I like the execution of it, the size of the front screen, because other folding phones have these tiny little displays on the front that aren't very useful. Google went all out with that. Um, I like the many cameras, the fact that Google was like, fuck it, we're doing three cameras. Um, I love that we're allowed to swear on podcasts, right? <laughs> uh, the idea that it's launching with 50, more than 50 optimized apps. 
agree with Julian that the translation demo was one of the coolest by far. I saw that in person, two Google product managers, one who was speaking English and the other who was speaking Hindi. And the two of them were having a nearly seamless conversation because the PM um, who was speaking in English was holding up his folding phone so that the display was facing the woman he was talking to and she was able to see it translated in real time in her language. Um, All that is really cool. I hate the price of the phone. And I sort of hate that we don't, we still don't fully understand why Google makes its own hardware. Not that I want them to stop. It's just, I would absolutely love to better understand the end game here. So if anyone knows, please DM me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, like, I think Pixel in general, if you look at what they've been doing since they launched Pixel, you can see that they're showing the industry and all of their partners how they feel about Android, right? Totally. It's the most optimized version of Android. Yeah. Here's what you can do. In our world, this is how we see it playing out, right? So everybody else can be like, oh, yeah, okay, sure. And maybe they adjust their own products or their own software experiences to match that. It hasn't really worked out that way. Like, I still feel like Android feels kind of fragmented. I use a Pixel phone. Uh, I've used a Pixel phone since the 2. So I'm on the 6 now. And when I pick up a Samsung phone, it feels like more foreign to me than an iPhone does. You know what oh, I mean? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Like the interactions and the sounds that it makes uh, and also just the hardware itself. It feels like its own world. Like the Galaxy yeah. line feels like its own world. And, it and, feels well, then, like and then the Pixel has Material U too. It does. Yeah. And I really like the interface mm-hmm. and it actually feels closer to iOS than, mm-hmm. than most other Android interfaces. So, so the way I also see it is like, for example, I just reviewed the Galaxy A54, which is like Samsung's competitor to the Pixel 7a. The, the budget line. Yeah. The, it's like a $450 Android phone. And on paper, both of them, you know, they're, when you use it, feel very similar. You know, there's pretty decent performance on the Samsung. Cameras are pretty good. They offer very similar things with a few things here and there that are missing. But the key thing that makes the Pixel feel and, you know, just a much better phone overall are all those software features that they've been polishing over the course of, you know, many years. Like there's so many of these uh, AI assisted features, um, call screen, like I literally never get a spam call on a Pixel versus when I switch to the Samsung, it's like a couple times a week I get a spam call. Yeah. Um, it's the Google Recorder app. When I use a Pixel phone, I love using that app and love I love it. getting the speaker, you love know, it. transition, like mm-hmm. all that stuff is great. And then I use like a normal third-party recorder app and I'm just like, it's it's fine on the Samsung. Uh, and then like things like um, Now Playing. I use that thing all the time and I'm always checking the Pixel when I'm in a surrounding where there's ambient music and I'm like, oh, it's a song. And it already tells me. Whereas yeah. on the Samsung, I have to open up Assistant or something and say, what is the song? And so there's all of these things that are kind of natively just happening on the Pixel that really distinguishes it from the other devices. And so I don't know the answer to like why Google is making its own hardware, but like that alone feels more different than what even like Apple sometimes feels like it's doing because you can't get a lot of those features necessarily um, happening natively or passively on an iPhone. Right. And like you said earlier, the folding phone market is still growing. More and more people are buying them. We know that more companies are going to be making them. So Google making its own folding phone sort of teaches it how a folding screen is going to work in the real world in a way that they may not be able to discern if they're just looking at the way that people are using Samsung devices, right? So they make their own. 
they get people, some people to buy them, mm -hmm. <laughs> a modicum of users uh, mm -hmm. where they can sort of study their behaviors and figure mm -hmm. out, um, you know, okay, so people really like app switching. And this is the most common way that people app switch because, of course, it's Google. Of course, they're watching mm -hmm. what you do on your phone. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I mean, these relationships and the phone market is really interesting in the sense that all of these manufacturers are competing with each other. but They also have really deep relationships with each other, mm -hmm. like Samsung phones run on Google Android. Google's phones, in some instances, may be using Samsung displays. Apple and Google and Samsung may be in competition with each other, but the default search engine on Apple Safari on iPhone may be Google. It is Google, right? It's it's um, it, Even though they are competing with each other, as they're all making these different products, they're also kind of learning from each other, too, mm -hmm. which is interesting to think about. Should we talk about the tablet? What tablet? There was a tablet? Oh, what tablet? Right. The Pixel tablet. Yeah, so this Pixel was something tablet. that they showed off last year, right, yeah. in 2022. Yeah. And they said, we're making another Pixel tablet. And I know this is not the first one, but I think they said it was, they just called it the Pixel tablet. Right. Uh, and then we saw it yesterday. And now it's actually for sale. $500 comes with a dock. And uh, the dock has a speaker in it. So it kind of turns it into a Nest smart home hub that you can remove the screen of and walk around the house with. Right. What else? Um, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, I have a lot of mixed feelings on the tablet. Um, I think the idea of it is great, especially as like a replacement to like a traditional smart display. I have a bunch of Nest hubs in my house and I feel like it's only just a thing that I use to ask the weather and look at old photos and that's kind of it. So being able to like take it off uh, and also use it while you're on the couch and bed or whatever. Um, I think that's a pretty smart idea. But I also feel like they're kind of limiting the use of this device by making it purely a home device. Like they don't really want you to leave the house with it. Um, and, you know, traditionally we've all dunked on Android on you know, tablets and Android because the experience is just really bad. Mm. I reviewed the OnePlus Pad like a month ago and things have changed a lot. Like it's gotten way nicer to use uh, and you know much of that is Google's um, making because they've been updating a lot of their own apps as you know Lauren said before 50 apps uh, Google apps are now optimized for larger screen interfaces and all of that is something vi visible in Android as a whole in Android 13 and Android 14 like it just is much more iPad-esque in some ways there's like a persistent taskbar you can split screen a lot easier um, and so I like using Android on a tablet. Like that was the first time I was like, holy crap, this is this is actually pretty nice. But I also want to take the tablet to leave the house. And like Google's like, yeah, you can do that, but we're not going to make any accessories. Like there's no stylus, so you can't really draw with it, which I find that I think a lot of people would like to draw on something like a tablet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's no, they're like, you know, you can buy your own separate Bluetooth keyboard and use it with the thing to type and do other work if you want to. But I'm like, well, I would like like a custom made keyboard that I can just, you know, flip and fold it up. But they were like, eh, well, we'll see. So <laughs> I don't know. It feels like a weird uh Interesting device. Um, if you were going to buy a smart display, I, I guess this it makes sense. If you're going to buy a smart display and a tablet, then I could see yourself buying this thing. Um, if you have a smart display, I don't see why you would replace it. I don't know. It's a, it's a weird product. The price feels a little high to me still, um, but uh, I'm you know I'm glad that at least we're getting more Android tablets finally because for all the longest time it was just Samsung, Lenovo, and then Apple. Yeah, uh, it still is mostly Apple in terms of sales, but well, um, we won't even talk about Amazon's tablets. 
Yeah, well, I mean, I know that's a huge market share, but they're not like you not know, a really joyous Android. experience. Yeah, to they're use. just so inexpensive. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so yeah, I tend to agree with everything Julian said about the tablet. I have a Nest Hub in my bedroom. It's a pretty inexpensive thing. I use it for very basic tasks. Would I pay five hundred dollars to have something that's mostly going to be used as another Nest Hub, and then occasionally I would take off its dock and use it as a tablet, but not have a keyboard with it? Or ha- I. Yeah, like what I use my iPad for is like entertainment and then I take it with me when I'm traveling in case I need to do work because it has a great accessory keyboard. Yep. Google is really focusing this tablet on the home and then the question becomes, do you want to pay $500 for that in-home tablet experience? I will say that the uh, experience of having multiple users on the tablet was really cool because obviously this is a home tablet. So let's mm-hmm. say you have four other people in the house. You can easily just tap a little button and then switch your profile to your own profile and it changes everything. So the entire wallpaper, the, your you know your custom app settings and all that kind of stuff, the logins and everything switches over to your profile. Very simple and seamless way. And I think that isn't something that you often see. It's a little clunky on other platforms. So yeah. um, that seemed like the smartest thing because this is going to be a home tablet. And, you know, my wife is going to want to use it maybe this day and I'm going to want to use it. And then we don't have to like have switch accounts constantly and switch apps and all that kind of such. So I thought that was really cool. Or but do that thing where like you open up the um, bio authentication in the settings and you each record the your, your, your thumbprints. <laughs> <laughs> so one of so you, both of your thumbprints are stored that in That sounds it. like a real bonding moment. It is. In the modern era. It is technology. All right. Well, we have to pause here. But before we do, I just want to mention that we published a lot of stories out of IO and people should read all of them. You can find all of them at wired.com slash gear. Julian did a review of the Pixel 7a and he has hands-on impressions of the Pixel Fold. Lauren wrote about all of the new AI features that are showing up in Android. Uh, Boone, our producer, who's over there with his headphones on, wrote about uh, the reasons why Google might be making a folding phone and what their strategy is in the long term. We also have stories from the business desk, from Will Knight, from Kari Johnson, uh, from Stephen Levy, news and analysis out of IO. So definitely check all of it out. All right. Now let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll do our recommendations. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? Come on, of course you do. Introducing The Jordan Harbinger Show. The Jordan Harbinger Show, which Apple named one of its best of 2018, is aimed at making you a better informed, more critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening, even inside your own brain. Jordan dives into the minds of fascinating people, from athletes, authors, and scientists, to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, B as in boy, I, N as in Nancy, G-E-R, in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. All right, this is the last part of our show where we go through our recommendations for things that people should check out. Julian, you get to go first. What is your recommendation? Well, I am going on my honeymoon on Saturday, which is very soon, and I'm going to Japan for two and a half weeks. So my recommendation is to just leave uh, your work and go do something else for two and a half weeks if you can. Obviously, not everyone has the luxury to do that, but... Just uh, I'm not I'm not I was thinking of I was thinking of uninstalling Slack 
you know, just oh, completely going a little extreme and just not even checking in because I have a, a tendency to, uh, you know, I think Mike knows this. Yes, you I, do. Uh, <laughs> look at Slack when I'm technically off. Uh, but uh, yeah, so I'm just going to. Uh, and also, uh, might I also suggest that The Legend of Zelda, uh, which we have a review of the new uh, Tears of a Kingdom on Wired.com is coming out tomorrow, right before I have a 16-hour flight. So it's really great for me. And I think you should also take the weekend to maybe play that if you have a Switch. So Very nice. That sounds yeah. amazing. What parts of Japan are you going to? I am going to Tokyo, Sapporo, and then uh, Hiroshima, and then Fukuoka, which is the tonkatsu capital of the ramen style so yes uh, i'm gonna go to ichiran there and get some it's just a food trip uh, yes okonomiyaki yes okonomi i'm gonna hit a get a you know as uh, on your recommendation i'm gonna get to see a a baseball game in hiroshima nice the carpu yeah oh and uh, apparently they go crazy uh in the stadium it's just completely different vibe from what you would expect uh, at a baseball game so uh very excited for that, too. Yep. That's awesome. Does your wife know that you are positioning this as a food trip versus a Oh, that was, I would say, her Ah, idea. okay, great. Yeah. <laughs> She's like the Match real heaven, foodie. foodie uh-huh. and like she, she knows everything, and she knows exactly what she wants. So, uh, yeah, no, that's uh, – yeah, overall, I mean, this is our second time to Japan. So um, I think this is more – I haven't planned anything. So, um, I, like, I know where I'm going, but it's kind of just like, I guess we'll figure it out. That's so, awesome. Yeah, yeah. Sugoi. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. You know, the, um, <laughs> I realized that a lot of people I knew or like knew peripherally were going to Japan in the past month. And I was like, I was a little befuddled by it. Like, okay, it's cherry blossom season. Okay, mm. like at, at one point, like I was like, is this like a bunch of people who work in AI are going for some reason? Because, you know, people were meeting with the prime minister to talk about AI. Um, and then I realized it's because it's actually, it's it's open to tourists again without having to follow any rigid COVID protocols, right? That's yeah. the thing that's changed recently. That changed like late last year. And I, like as of, I think like four days ago, you officially don't need to like show them a negative COVID test. Okay. Um, I think they still, you know, check your temperature and, you know, th- that kind of stuff and check your, if you have a vaccination. Um, but it is way easier to get in now because there was a period where they were only letting you go if you followed a guide. <laughs> I don't think a lot of people want to like walk completely around Japan with a specific guide to like monitor what they're doing and whether the face mask is on all the time, which, you know, hopefully it should be. But, um, yeah, it's just a lot easier now. So cool. Uh, Lauren, what is your recommendation? My recommendation is a book that my wonderful podcast co-host got me for my birthday. Oh. Thanks, Mike. Oh, the book I got you. The book you got me. I thought you meant the one that Gideon got you. Uh, Gideon has not yet bought me a book. (laughs) I'm waiting on that one. Uh, Gideon, if you're listening, he's not, he doesn't listen to this show. He's busy with our other show. (laughs) Uh, The book is called Still Pictures. It's written by Janet Malcolm. Janet Malcolm was a longtime New Yorker. Writer. She wrote for The New Yorker for many years, starting back in 1963. She died in 2021, um, and she covered a lot of subjects. She covered art, photography, crime. But this is a memoir, and it's uh, really more of a series of vignettes based on old photographs. Every chapter starts with an old photograph. And a lot of it is focused on her family's experience as Czech immigrants uh, living in New York City. And what's interesting about it is um, the memories that each photo sparks are kind of incomplete for her, right? Like she has these very hazy remembrances of her parents' friends or neighbors in their Czech community. And maybe she remembers more of her childlike judgment of of the adults around her more than she actually remembers them as people. 
But um, part of the memoir is really about becoming comfortable with that incompleteness. Um, it, it, it's just a really beautiful work on memory. And her daughter actually wrote the very last chapter because Malcolm died before it was done. But I uh, really enjoyed it and I highly recommend it. So that's still pictures by Janet Malcolm. Maybe right. if you have a 16-hour flight coming up, you might enjoy it. I should, I should take that with me. <laughs> Very nice. Mike, what's your recommendation? Well, this is not SpawnCon, but I do want to recommend uh, a pair of headphones that I have been wearing and actually really enjoying. And it's been a while since I've recommended a gadget on the Gadget Lab. But since we talked about phones and tablets this week, feels so good. I have to celebrate that by also recommending a gadget. Um, these are true wireless headphones or wire-free headphones or, you know, they're earbuds that connect via Bluetooth and are not connected in any way. I, what what are we calling these things? Wire-free? <laughs> buds. I think they're just wireless earbuds at this point. Wireless earbuds. We all know what those words mean. Uh, these are the JBL Reflect Aero. So they're workout headphones. They're $150. They're waterproof. They have little wings to keep them in your ears. Um, I've used a lot of these things over the years. And these JBLs I keep coming back to. Uh, we have some headphone guides and I just recently wrote them up uh, for inclusion in a buying guide for headphones because I've just been enjoying using them so much. But also one of the reasons I wanted to recommend these in particular is because JBL also just put out its Tor 2 headphones, which are the headphones that have uh, a case that has a touchscreen on it. And like, I think that's really cool that you can get headphones that have a touchscreen on the case. So you can use the touchscreen for like volume, for sound settings, to see incoming phone calls and texts, and then like accept the phone call or hang up a phone call. But like everybody's laughing at me for liking this. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm going to go back to basic journalistic principles, which is why? I mean, I was going to ask. Because <laughs> it's cool. How often <laughs> are you walking around with the case in your hand though, right? In my pocket. And, right, but, then, but then if then I'm getting a call, it. you would just check your phone or maybe the earbuds would say, but would I if I had the option not to? I could see that being useful if you're a, a, a gym person and uh -huh. so you're like on an, a piece of equipment or on a bench and then you don't have your phone out, but you have the headphone case out. Uh-huh. Maybe? This I don't is know. Like a Who's very carrying specific... the case in that yeah. situation too, right? I don't know. It's It's That's... very – I mean – you know, it sound. I could see some utility. Yeah, but I also understand the laughing at this thing because it has a screen on it. I don't know. I I I think it's wonderful. I Is think it's it delightful. A, with the battery life on the case with the screen? Wouldn't that suck up battery life? It does. Yes, but if you can imagine, the case is a little bit larger because it has a screen on it. So I think they use the extra space that they gain by putting a screen on a on a headphone case. Uh -huh. Uh, maybe they fill that with battery. I, I don't huh. really know. I think we are testing them. I'm not testing them, but I think somebody at Wired is is testing them, and we'll we'll know the answers. I think to these questions maybe a little bit more clearly in the near future. But that's also a JBL product, so I couldn't let this go by without mentioning it. <laughs> but you're not recommending that one technically now. No, I like the I like the Reflect Arrow headphones. So you are recommending those? Oh yeah, they're great. You've I, gone running with them. I really like them. I wear them running. Uh, I wear them. Um, when I do like yoga in the morning, when I do yoga in the morning, uh, I wear them on long walks. So I use them for podcasts, for music. I use them to make phone calls. And uh, I, I really like them. Like I said, I've tried a lot of these things and they all just have weird stuff about them. Like the controls uh, are not customizable. 
or the sound doesn't have enough settings or like the ANC, the active noise canceling is always on. Like I hate all those things about headphones, right? I want full control over what it sounds like. I want full control over what happens when I touch the touch sensitive parts and I want them to fit well and not fall out of my ears when I'm sweating and running around. And these, these do all of that. So I really like them. Nice. Great. How much? 150 bucks. All right. $150. Uh, I think you, you can get them cheaper. That's just the manufacturer suggested retail price but nice yes yeah for like 10 of those you can get a pixel fold yeah <laughs> i can't wait <laughs> all right well that is our show for this week julian thank you for flying out to california to be here with us of course thank you for having me awesome having you in studio come back again soon maybe wwdc uh debatable debatable <laughs> <laughs> and have fun in japan thank you and thank you all for listening if you have feedback, you can find all of us on Twitter or Blue Sky for the cool people on the show. Just check the show notes. Our producer is Boone Ashworth. We will be back next week. Until then, goodbye. Okay, three, two, one. Mike, what's your recommendation? <laughs> <laughs> oh. Oh, Jesus. Oh, my God. All right. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you. And how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. From PR.